Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website johnsherwood.com where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. This is our theme passage here for the series that we're going to be in together for the next several weeks. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I mentioned this last week in case you weren't able to see it. You know, God's word says that we actually have everything that we need for a life of godliness. That is a profound statement. Meaning what? That our life of godliness is not based... On our circumstances he says through these through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires we're able to participate in this divine nature with God we're able to escape the corruption of the world that's caused by evil desires you felt any corruption in the world caused by evil desires this past week in your life, in the life of others? We don't have to live very long to experience the corruption of the world caused by evil desires, both within ourselves and without. Verse 3 says, I'm sorry, verse 5, For this reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. Don't worry, guys. Don't feel too stressed out or overwhelmed. We're going to take these one at a time. So in the next seven or eight weeks, we're going to have added all of these things to our faith, and we'll be done. No, he says, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What keeps us from being unproductive and ineffective? Adding to our faith. Adding to our faith what? Adding to our faith these things. What does that imply? If we're not adding to our faith, if we're not maturing, if we're not growing, if we're not increasing in measure of these things, we're not effective in the knowledge of Jesus. He says, and whoever does not have them, in verse 9, is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Exactly what John was just sharing with us as we commune together with Jesus and one another, as we take this bread, as we take this juice, as we remember Jesus and his instruction, we remember that we've been cleansed from our past sins. If we remember that we've been cleansed from our past sins, Peter here is saying that will lead to us adding to our faith. So if you're not adding to your faith, you've forgotten that you're actually forgiven. That's a pretty big thing to forget. That could have really massive consequences. Not only are we supposed to be adding to our faith in order to not become ineffective and unproductive, but we also 
are to never stumble. Check this out. He goes on and he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Wow, there's some tension, right? There's some tension in that statement. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. So which one is it? My effort or God's election? Yes. There's tension there. And a lot of Christians struggle with that tension. Well, no, it doesn't matter what I do. I don't have to make any effort. It's God's election, God's calling. God does all the work. Okay. Or, no, God doesn't do the calling. It's me. I have to work to earn this cleansing of my sins. Both ends of the spectrum are incorrect. Biblically, they are held together in this perfect divine tension that we have to struggle and wrestle with in our daily lives. That yes, God does call and elect us. God does cleanse us. God does save us. But we also have to make every effort to confirm this, to validate this, to live in this election. And he says, for if you do these things, making every effort, walking in this tension, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't know what never stumble means. It doesn't mean that we will never sin. Plenty of other passages you can go to in the New Testament where disciples of Jesus are sinning even after Jesus raises from the dead. But he says in connection with never stumbling that we will receive this rich welcome into this eternal kingdom. So perhaps there's a correlation there that stumbling means to miss this reward to like we talked about last week actually run this race like Paul was talking about and not get a crown not reach your finish line not actually win Peter here says if we make every effort if we continue to add to our faith we will never stumble we will receive a rich welcome last week we talked briefly about the first two things he talks about adding to our faith goodness and knowledge Today, we're going to talk a little bit about self-control. Self-control, the next thing that he mentions here, this word in the original language means virtue. One who masters his or her own desires and passions, especially sexual desires. The word here, self-control, has a very strong connotation of mastering sexual desires. Look over in Acts chapter 24. We're talking about adding to our faith, self-control. You ever come to a church service before and heard a preacher talk about adding to your life self-control? Well, if not, now, you're, now you have. And you know, we're going to read a story in Acts 24 about a guy who heard a preacher talking about some very similar things. And we're going to see how he reacted. This governor, Felix, in Acts 24, the book of Acts is written by the apostle Luke. The Dr. Luke, the, the disciple Luke, and he's writing about this history of the early church after Jesus raises from the dead. Jesus sends out his disciples. And the book of Acts kind of chronicles the first several decades of what the disciples did and where they went and what the message of Jesus extending out to other people looked like. And by this point in the story, there's this guy named Saul of Tarsus. In chapter 9, he becomes what? Paul. And how does he become Paul? 
First he's blinded, and what's he blinded by? The light, which is what? He's blinded by the glorious vision of the raised Messiah. And seeing Jesus is so powerful, go back to Acts chapter 9 and read this, that it actually blinds him. And he walks to his destination. Well, really it says that he was guided by his friends, held by the hand because he was blind. And he spends three days fasting and praying, not eating, to figure out what just happened to me. And does anybody remember when he was walking on that road and he sees this vision of Jesus and he's blind? Does anybody remember what he was on his way to go do? He was going to arrest people who follow Jesus. And so at this point in the story in Acts 24, we see Paul now talking about this experience that he had with Jesus in Acts 9. This would have been many probably years later. And now he's in front of this governor, Felix. Look in verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Uh -oh. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. And when I find it convenient, I will send for you. At that time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. So Paul's telling this guy about this Jesus who he met on this road on the way to go persecute and to lock up people who follow Jesus. Saul of Tarsus was an incredibly zealous man for God. Oftentimes we read or we misunderstand Saul. We think Saul was the bad guy until he met Jesus in Acts 9. And it depends on your vantage point. From Paul's vantage point and many, many others, he was the good guy. Paul was the guy that was taking a stand for righteousness, who was taking a stand for God because of the Mosaic law. These Jesus followers were idolaters. And God told us that if anyone were to worship anyone other than God, they were to be stoned to death. Paul was the hero, or Saul at that time. Jesus comes and corrects his misplaced zeal. And then his zeal carries him into scenarios like this, where he's locked up, he's under trial, and he's telling people about who this Jesus really is. And this one guy, Felix, hears this message, verse 25, about righteousness, about self-control, and about the judgment to come. And what's Felix's response? Fear. Why was Felix afraid? Paul is locked up. He's the governor. What does he have to be afraid of? The Bible doesn't give us great insight into what's going on in the heart and mind of Felix, but we could take some guesses. We could take a stab at why would someone feel afraid at a message of judgment and self-control 
and righteousness? What happens when a message of self-control is preached? Sometimes people get afraid. When the gospel isn't just presented as the preacher saying, say a prayer, just believe, and everything's going to be all right with your soul eternally. Nobody balks at that message. Nobody's afraid of that message. But this guy was afraid of the message that Paul was saying because it was a very different message. It can cause fear for those who don't want to repent because of judgment. But to those who actually believe, it can cause godly sorrow that leads to repentance and leaves no regret, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7. So this governor, Felix, he's afraid when he hears this message, right? Perhaps he was convicted. Perhaps he was feeling guilty because he was living a self-indulgent, sinful lifestyle. Maybe there was something about his Jewish wife. We don't know how Jewish she was. She was apparently married to a non-Jew, so probably couldn't have been that Jewish. But nonetheless, perhaps she had some conviction about this Yahweh God. We don't know all the influences, but he was afraid. Perhaps he was afraid that he would have to one day give an account before an almighty God. We don't know exactly why he was afraid, but he was terrified by this message from Paul. Do you think that that helped or hurt, it, hurt Paul's standing there with Felix? Paul would have been hurted real bad because now he's got the dude who controls his future afraid and angry, perhaps feeling guilty. But Paul preached it anyways. Paul preaches a message here that has self-control at the centerpiece of judgment and righteousness. This, to me, does not sound a lot like most of the gospel understandings here in America. And as we look out upon Christians' lives, we don't see this message being lived out very often. Look in Galatians chapter 5. We continue to see Paul expounding on this idea of self-control that Peter talked about. In Galatians 5, in verse 22, after speaking about these acts of sinful nature that are obvious, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. God's Spirit is actually a spirit of self-control. Did you know that God exercises great self-control? Think about your own life. How much self-control is a righteous, holy, perfected, blinding you on a road to Damascus God to not smite you and I right now? The fact that he would allow us to continue to draw breath, just like John talked about as Paul addressed in Acts 17 to the Athenians, 
God allows us to continue to draw breath, to continue to live in these places and times and boundaries marked out for us. Why? So that we can seek him. That takes great self-control from God. Where is that self-control born from? Love. Paul says that if we live in step with God's spirit, who is a spirit of self-control, if we live in step with him, if we live in obedience to him, then self-control is going to be produced out of our lives. The fruit of self-control. Especially when it comes to crucifying the passions and desires of the flesh. Again, especially sexual desires is a part of this concept. And he's just gotten done talking about a lot of that in 19, verse 19 through 21. But he says that those who belong to Jesus have and will continue to crucify their passions and desires. I don't know about you, but crucifixion is not really like a um, pretty picture. It's grotesque. Mel Gibson has inundated our culture with just how grotesque crucifixion is. And yet this is the exact same metaphor that Paul is using for what it looks like for us to kill our desires and passions in our own life. It can get ugly. You can make decisions that look really, really strange to some people. You can sacrifice stuff that people go, are you nuts? Crucifying our passions and desires is not pretty. It's an ugly process. But if we belong to Jesus, that's what determines the way that we live our life. I read this in a book. It says, to turn to Christ, and this is a, um, this is a book that probably would come from a much more popularized evangelical message, in my opinion. It said, to turn to Christ in faith, meaning to become a Christian, is necessarily to turn away from the God-resisting life of the flesh. So in this way, repentance is inherent in the very nature of faith. That's not a message that you hear a lot. We hear sola fide from the Reformation. Faith alone, just believe. No, you gotta actually repent too. No, belief is actually gonna cause you to repent. There is no belief without a life of crucifying our passions and desires. It makes people afraid. It makes people scared. It causes certain people to run away. Let's not change the message for itching ears, even if they're our own. If you wanted more self-control in your life, if you want to add to your faith this self-control that Peter's talking about, we have to stop resisting the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to resist the Holy Spirit? How do we resist the Holy Spirit? Spirit, stop. No. My son is really into that right now. Daddy, stop. No. Why are you resisting me, son? What does it look like for us to resist the Holy Spirit? By not obeying God's word. The Holy Spirit can never lead us to do something that is contradictory to God's revealed will in His Word. If the Holy Spirit tells you to go and be sexually immoral with someone, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. I don't care how much you believe it was, it was not. It was some other spirit and it wasn't holy. 
Could have been your own spirit. But that's a different lesson for a different day. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to be our great counselor, teaching us and reminding us about God's word. And when we don't obey God's word, we are resisting the Holy Spirit. A lot of times we think of the Holy Spirit as this like ethereal, mysterious, like woo thing. And we miss the concreteness of when you and I do not obey God's word, we are resisting the Holy Spirit. We might not feel it. We might not know that we're doing it, but that is exactly what's happening. And Paul here is talking about don't resist the Holy Spirit. We've got to keep in step with him. How can you keep in step with someone if you don't know where they are? We've got to locate the Holy Spirit sometimes. And by locating the Holy Spirit, I don't mean, blah, 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 blah. No, what I mean is that the Holy Spirit is trying to guide you and I into obedience with God so that we can experience this life of self-control that God wants us to have. And yes, sometimes self-control gets ugly, it's dirty, it gets bloody. To cut off and gouge away and throw it off, as Jesus talked about, that's not always the American dream. Mastering his desires and passions. This is what self-control means. Paul here in verse 19, he says, the acts of sinful nature are obvious. What's the first one he says? Porn. The word there that is translated sexual immorality in the original language is porneia. It's where we get our word porn. Sexual immorality, when you read in the NIV in many English languages, that's what you're reading about. Listen to what God's word says about sexual immorality for a moment. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, where we just read. Among you, as disciples, as Christians, following God in step with his Holy Spirit, for you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, porneia, or of any kind of impurity, or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore. Again, there's that imagery of dying, of crucifixion, of things that get messy. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature. What's the first one he lists? Apparently God knew that there is some sexual immorality. There is sexual desire in the core of our flesh that needs to be killed. Turn on the TV for about 37 seconds. You'll see how prevalent it is. Go to the World Wide Web, in which we're trying to be a small beacon of light in a dark world. And that's not even the dark net. That's the regular internet. 1 Thessalonians 4, it is God's will that you, Christians, disciples, in step with his Holy Spirit, should be sanctified. What does it look like to be sanctified? To avoid sexual immorality. You see why Felix was afraid? It should make us afraid. Why? Because this touches at the heart of every human being. When you see a list of sin, things that are missing the mark of God, things that are unlike God, sexual morality is almost always at the top of the list. You know, if you are giving in to sexual immorality 
on your device, laptop, tablet, phone, if I'm doing that, we have to stop resisting the Holy Spirit. We have to be willing to get rid of it, get a filter, get a friend, to get a password. Get rid of your device altogether and get a little flip phone. I don't care. I've seen brothers walk around here with no internet phone. It's like, don't you know it's 2019? Yeah, but I know that I'm walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And I'm not resisting Him. We had a brother share this past week at our men's group how 2018 has been this great victory for him because he's taken radical steps. He's made choices to get rid of, to cut off, to gouge out. And he says, I've been having victory in my sexual purity like never before. He stopped resisting the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Another brother came to me in private and he was looking to seek help with his device. Because he wanted to stop resisting the Holy Spirit. And he says, hey, I have this app and this app does this. And he showed me and how do I get rid of that? And I said, there's no way to get rid of it but to get rid of it. And he deleted it right there on the spot. Right there. Didn't even walk away. He said, okay, gone. And he said, you know, I use that a lot. And I can use that for a lot of good things too. But it's not worth me resisting the Holy Spirit. When you hear a message of judgment, righteousness, and self-control, and you have a godly fear, it causes repentance. And if it doesn't, it causes you to run away quickly. Well, maybe he'll give me some money, so let's keep talking. Felix wasn't interested in any message of judgment. He wasn't interested in standing before God and giving an account, apparently, one day. If we're in an impure sexual relationship with another person, we just have been talking about the digital world, right? The lap dance on our laptop while our laptop's sitting in our lap type thing. That was a Funkadelic reference for any of you guys from the, from the 90s, but that's okay. If we're in a relationship with a real person, whether they call themselves a Christian or not, we've got to stop resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is jealous for God's holiness. So we either follow him or we run away from him. The life of self-control that God wants us to have is a life of freedom. This is the paradox of God. God is not trying to ruin our fun. He's trying to magnify our pleasure. Let that one sink in for a moment. The world tries to sell you and I pleasures that are cheap. God wants us to buy pleasures that are real and will last. But you've got to be willing to cut off, gouge out. You've got to be willing to end the relationship, not go back to it. You've got to be willing to say, just as I did when I became a Christian, Hey, look, sweetheart, I'm not calling no more. Don't call me. I love you. I'm sorry that I sinned against you. Please forgive me. I've got to follow the Holy Spirit because I'm going to stand before God and give judgment one day. Bye. And then it's up to me every day to resist the urges of the flesh that want to go back to those cheap pleasures, whether it's sexual or emotional or whatever. This is the message of the gospel. That Jesus can and will empower us to live lives of self-control. Remember what Peter said before he starts getting to add to your faith? He says, you have been given everything you need for a life in godliness. You don't need anything else other than the Holy Spirit to live a life of self-control. And you know, some, of the, some people that are the most self-controlled in certain areas, 
lack all control in others. Look at a lot of our athletes. World-renowned studs and studettes in their field. And they have great tenacity and self-discipline. And they sacrifice to the nth degree to go again, as we talked about last week, for this crown that's going to fade away. A medal that they're not going to keep forever. But what often happens with our lauded athletes that have such great self-discipline in their lives? They go bankrupt. They're broke. They can't manage their finances. They're addicted to drugs. They got some crazy psycho relationship that's landing them or someone else in jail. Other areas of their life are completely not self-controlled. That's not the self-control of the Holy Spirit. So don't confuse self-control of the world and self-control of God's Spirit. 2 Timothy 1 says that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of what? Power, love, and what was that, Emily? Self-discipline. She's been memorizing that scripture. I'm so proud of her. So if we want to train ourselves in godliness, if we have not forgotten that God has cleansed us from our past sins, let's continue to add to our faith self-control and stop resisting the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage us, get open today. If there's some area that you're aware that you're resisting the Holy Spirit, get open today. Talk about it. Confess to God. Confess to your brother and sister. Figure out how you can start adding to your faith a life of self-control where your passions and desires are getting crucified. Don't think that because you're coming to church or you have this outward form of godliness, but this self-control of the spirit is not being exuded in your life, that everything's hunky-dory. That was why Felix got afraid, because Paul disrupted his worldview. He said, Felix, don't think everything's all right just because you're the governor. There's a power much greater, and it made him afraid. Perhaps you're just starting to figure out and really seek your faith or where you are with God or even who this God and Jesus character is. Perhaps you've been stagnant in your faith for a long time. Perhaps you're wanting to come back to God, live for him again. All of us need to be able to figure out how can we add to our faith self-control. And let's not try to figure that out on our own. Let's do that in community with one another. Even if this is your first time, you don't know anyone, just be bold. Be bold. God did not give us a spirit of timidity. Just go. Hey, you, I don't know you. I need to talk. Can we please talk? I don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. Let's sit down and open the Bible together. Let's figure out how we can have these lives to the full that Jesus died for. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, your message is kind of scary sometimes. There's such a duality to the message of Jesus. On one hand, it's such great hope and joy and amazing promises and treasure, just like Peter talked about, that we can live a life of godliness. But Father, there's another part of it that's scary, part of the gospel message that says there is going to be a judgment and that there is a judge and that we will have to give an account before the eyes of whom everything is laid bare. God, help us to not let go of one part of that truth for the other. 
Help us to walk in tension with your Holy Spirit and step with him between these, these dueling ideas that you are gracious, Father. You love us. You want every person to come to a knowledge of the truth and thus be saved. But yet you are holy and you are just and judgment will come and you will make all evil righted. God, help us to proclaim a message boldly as Paul did to Felix. Even if we're standing before governors and kings and the president, the highest powers of our land and help us, Father, to be faithful to you, to know that there is no power in this land greater than you. And because we deeply believe that, it transforms our lives on a daily basis to a life of repentance, fleshly desires and passions getting crucified. God, help us to be open, to walk in the light. Thank you, Father, that you give us one another. Thank you that I could call up my brother this week and do that very thing and say, you know, bro, I looked at that picture on the screen too long. I clicked on that and I shouldn't have. It wasn't good for me. Help me stay accountable, brother. Thank you, God, that you give us these opportunities. They don't leave us as orphans to just come to church on Sundays and go figure it out the rest of the week, but that we can really be a family. Help us to do that, God. Help us to take the steps that we need to, to make that a reality, God, to not just be spectators but really participate in that divine nature that you've allowed us entrance into. God, we love you and we thank you for first loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Faith Fuel podcast. We look forward to seeing you next time.